0: The Partially Examined Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.
1: You are listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our questions for episode 161 are something like, what is white privilege and what should we do about it? And we looked at material by Charles Mills of Peggy McIntosh, Lewis Gordon, Charles Yancey, Tim Weiss, John McWhorter, and Lawrence Blum. To get the reading, to more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, taking advantage of the low expectations brought about by my race in Madison, Wisconsin.
2: (laughs) This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas.
0: This is Wes Allen in Cambridge, Massachusetts This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin
3: This is Lawrence Ware fighting the power in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma (laughs)
1: Law was brave enough to have a thing that he was doing You guys, cowards
2: (laughs) (laughs) Cowards or lack of creativity No, it's cowardice cowardice.
3: (laughs) I don't know which one is worse I don't know if it's worse to have a lack of creativity or to be a coward Maybe you're both, I I have no idea
1: I feel like that the kind of analyses we've been reading here, somebody can make a case that they boil down to the same thing, like you had the courage to be creative or you know something like that, or, or your lack of creativity shows that you're uh, thinking according to the system, which in effect is a form of cowardice, these existential sort of uh, analyses.
2: I, I guess no the question is, how do we benefit from our cowardice? Not at all, because today you'll be called out.
3: All right, let's do it.
1: Yeah, so we had a bunch of readings here. First of all, why are we doing this? Partially because our last political episodes, we made a little offhand comment about really parroting Rorty, that this whole political correctness thing, and then bring it to the modern age, or the modern decade, since his book was 1998 or whatever, that people are analyzing the current election as in part lost because a huge portion of the electorate, was offended by these cultural tropes that are going on. And we've never just actually stopped and tried to think about what these tropes are and read some of the material and read some of the articles by smart people being nitpicky about the material and seeing what actually makes up, what are we talking about when we say white privilege? Why you might want to say that it doesn't exist or something or that of course it exists, it's an obvious fact, is because you don't have a common definition, you don't have a common understanding. So it seemed at least getting these things out would be helpful, and we have so many readings, I would guess, that maybe our first half would be more, we read these kind of cultural things, like the Peggy McIntosh article that it more or less invented the term from 1989. We've got these things that are part of the white privilege 101 required readings. So we'll talk about those a little bit, but then we also have these academic articles just as rigorous as anything else we've read for any episode. So uh, I would think maybe our second half will focus more on the nitpicky stuff. But uh, should we give some opening statements, what we're looking to get out of this or what the issues we're coming in, in here with Law, our guest? Do you want to start returning for the fourth time? I think that's a record for our, our guests.
2: Really? Maybe. Is
1: it really? Maybe not. Maybe Matt Teichman has more.
3: Well, first, I'm just happy to be here. Uh It's really been, it's crazy that, honestly, much of the success that I've kind of had in my career of late really kind of started with being on the Partially Examined Life. Actually, people reached out to me, having listened to you guys, and then inviting me out to come out and give talks about race and whatnot. And, of course, my area of specialization is philosophy of race. so. First, I want to say thank you guys for having me back on and allowing me to either break a record or tie a record or not make any kind of impact, whatever that is. But anyway,
1: got our cut. Did you bring our cut for for your talks? Uh,
3: yeah, I got it. It's it's right here. So all you got to do is come here and get it. I'll find you in Stillwater. I bet you will. I bet you will, but the money won't be with me. But seriously, I think it's just an important topic to discuss. It is a contentious topic, particularly in light of our current political kind of climate. Every single semester, I teach a fall class about philosophy of race. I teach a, A spring class, and then I teach a summer class. And I haven't even told you guys, but starting in the fall of next year, I'll be the co director of the Center for Africana Studies there at Oklahoma State University. This is a a subject matter that we spend a lot of time thinking about, talking about. Oftentimes, the question is, well, what's the good of having these kinds of conversations? And, And I think that's something that we'll have to kind of dig into. What's the point of these kinds of conversations? Because for me, it's certainly not about white guilt or anything along those lines. And so the question then becomes, well, then what will be the good thing about this? But nevertheless, ultimately, I think that discussing white privilege, kind of being clear about what it is and both what it is not, helps us to understand about how to talk intelligently about this subject matter.
4: Well, I found that I haven't really thought about it a whole lot, actually, except in the context of privilege itself. And then I have often reflected on my own for myself in a variety of ways, I guess, both being a man and being white and a whole other bunch of areas where I find that I don't, maybe this is like to the point of some of the articles that I don't think about that as being a defining characteristic. And I think thinking about the fact that I don't think about that (laughs) very much is important. And the part about these articles that was particularly resonating to me was thinking about the whole issue of privilege, which to me, I guess I find myself consciously aware of the fact that I just feel very lucky and fortunate and privileged, but thinking about what obligations it has and what role it
2: has and also what is it also to be fortunate. One of the things that struck me out of the readings that we did was the idea that we don't actually... We don't have a concept of whiteness, that the idea that the dominant paradigm is sort of as a default isn't a subject of reflection. So they talk about the way in which an individual black person has to represent all of black people or African American has to represent all African Americans, whatever. Absolutely. They're. Absolutely. You'll have to tell me. And we don't carry that burden, but it's not because we've said, oh, well, whites aren't subject to the same set of rules. It's just not even thought about. And so that sort of unexamined position of subjectivity is, I think, really interesting because that is a criticism that we've tried to bring up about just even within the philosophical tradition, philosophers trying to generalize from their own individual experience and assuming that the subjective experience of other people is identical to their own. And this is just an extension of that, but a much more concrete version of it. So this is just yet another
1: part of the philosophical picture of know thyself. So this kind of trying to interrogate these things that allegedly are exerting unconscious influence on you, I'm all for that. I also think that we need to be very critical, you know, with anything that is, I don't want to say that white privilege rhetoric is a socially dominant form yet. It's certainly not, you know, it's it's part of the academia. It's maybe dominant in the younger generation. But I have as a general rule of thumb that whenever anything gets mass produced like that, it gets dumbed down. There's probably something wrong with it. So having some sort of, uh even if there are completely valid facts that are being referred to and concepts that make sense and are a worthwhile part of a humanity's self-knowledge, that doesn't mean that every time somebody says, you're just saying that because of white privilege that they're using that language correctly. From my point of view, we're, we're talking about rhetoric. How is this rhetoric being used? What is it being used for? Is it legitimate? All right, Wes. All right. So,
0: so yeah, I have a fair amount of anxiety about this conversation.
1: Oh, come on, man. I
0: have such strong <laughs> –
3: Come on, man. Come on.
0: <laughs> I have such strong opinions about this. And, and that's good. My opinions diverge from most of my left-leaning friends. And – um you know, what I did, uh, since Friday and over the weekend, I've been writing and thinking about this, but I, it's one of these episodes where I ever prepared spending every waking minute. <laughs> and now I'm exhausted. Plus sort of the, uh, alternation between anger and sympathy as I was reading some of these things added to that, that exhaustion. But I think less than wanting to come, you know, with full guns blazing. What I did in trying to write about, I actually spent a lot of time on Peggy McIntosh's paper, even though it's sort of in a way, it's the least rigorous of the academic things we read. It's it's a foundational piece though. Yeah. Yeah. And in reading it and sort of trying to work through the logic of it and trying to make the strongest argument in favor of white privilege and trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean exactly? And how can it be beneficial? And trying to distinguish it and this is sort of probably a good entry point for the discussion, but it's distinct from, as as McIntosh herself points out, and as some of the other writers point out, it's distinct from a traditional, becoming aware of one's white privilege is a distinct thing from being aware of racial injustice and, say, black underprivilege and wanting to fight to change that. Those two things are different. And so the question is, what's the difference, and what does this add? And actually, from a pragmatic standpoint, How does
1: it help in accomplishing racial justice? Yeah, if I can just read the list of readings, which will be in the blog post corresponding to this episode at partiallyxamilife.com, so you don't have to remember this. But Wes just mentioned, we'll probably start with Peggy McIntosh's Unpacking the Invisible Backpack. It's from 1989. It's only five pages long. So I had put that in the category. I had kind of divided these into cultural versus academic. So the cultural, you know, we've got that, which I guess was in an actual journal somewhere. But it, maybe it's just the formatting of my online version. It does not read like a regular academic paper. And she was not a philosopher. She was a English PhD and teacher. And then we also watched a documentary by Tim Weiss called White Like Me, which is something that Law had recommended that he uses in the class that he teaches. Charles Yancey, Dear White America. So that's a 2015 editorial. So another piece of, uh, he's actually responding. Like, I know what you're going to say in the comment section. Like it's really speaking directly to the public, even though he is an academic and has written longer, more rigorous stuff. And then another article, a 2015 editorial from the daily beast by John McWhorter, the privilege of checking white privilege. So he's another black academic, but in his case, even though he is not in any sense conservative he thinks that this rhetoric of white privilege is kind of counterproductive, so that's kind of our con, perhaps, within that stream. Then, as far as the academic papers, we really just only read three of them. Charles W. Mill's White Ignorance from 2007, which is uh, probably the beefiest of the three. Louis R. Gordon's Critical Reflections on Three Popular Tropes in the Study of Whiteness. So that is, again, sort of critical, even though he's another black academic. He's a Franz Fanon scholar. He's obviously very interested in philosophy relating to race, and but just doesn't think maybe that there are things that are underthought about this particular rhetoric. And the last one, Lawrence Blum, White Privilege, A Mild Critique from 2008, which, as the title would indicate, also is nitpicking some things about the language. And he acknowledges Lewis Gordon's article and points out there are some subtleties in Peggy McIntosh's article that are missed, you know, when... So there's the actual five-page article, and then the initial thing we were pointed at was actually just a two-page list. Like, these are all the ways that I'm privileged, that you should put these on your wall and look at them and remind yourself that I can go shopping alone most of the time pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed and be grateful, you know, kind of like daily affirmations. Here are these things to keep in mind that not everybody shares these things that you take for granted. And I think just taking that little two-page handout and thinking that that's the whole idea by itself misses some pretty necessary context. Well,
0: I think we should take some of her examples. Here's what I tried to do. I tried to so it's a long list and it's not really organized in any particular way and some of the things I I wanted to look at the categories and figure out, okay, what are the general sort of things going on here? And I think what it seemed to jump out to me is some of it is material discrimination, the ways in which white people have material advantages but maybe more subtle than you might think maybe not coming from outright act of discrimination but for instance just having better social networks for finding employment or freedom from being discriminated against and harassed whether it's being followed around in a store or harassed by the police or things like that and i think that's probably that category is is on people's radar more than some of the other categories the other parts of the list focus on areas in which black people might feel Disrespected or slighted or stereotyped or ignored, left out, made socially uncomfortable. And whether it's in specific interactions with white people or in kind of the quality and quantity of representation within the dominant culture. So whether or not you can find representation in the media and the arts and educational materials and books and whether you can find, uh, you know, a representative toy, things like that. So that's sort of the general summary of the list. What stood out to me is a lot of it has to do with what's subtle about this idea of white privilege is this focus on the concept of social recognition and the importance of that and the ways in which, even beyond discrimination, that lack of social recognition has real consequences.
4: Isn't that central to the notion of what she means by privilege? That's why you have the term, in fact, even putting apart the white part of it, just the notion of privilege. She starts off with talking about Having come at this from being involved with women's studies, and she says, I have often noticed men's unwillingness to grant that they are overprivileged. And this idea of privilege being unacknowledged things that you are able to do that not everyone else is able to do. You miss the kind of contingency you have as being a member of the dominant culture that gives you privilege. And I guess that's part of the thing that I would also like to unpack is the notion of privilege means with respect to some kind of baseline and what the baseline in using white privilege and using the term in that way it means versus other kinds of things. I think that she means it's a baseline with respect to an average over all the members of the population as opposed to the baseline for the average in the population. I mean, it has to mean something like that, that all these cases of white people having privilege just by sheer numbers, if you take the average, right, they're not privileged with respect to them. They're they're privileged with respect to some kind of weighted normal. And I guess I'd like to understand what it means to have that where the baseline is.
0: Well, do we agree that this is about, so I mean, just getting at this definition of white privilege, I sort of, what I was throwing out there is the idea that what we're really focused on is social recognition, which is my way of summing up the idea of ways in which, you know, black people can feel slighted and so on. And the effect of that on the, the well-being of black people. Do people agree with me or that social recognition is what's at stake here?
3: I'm trying to understand exactly what you mean by social recognition. So if, if you can kind of deconstruct that for me a little bit. So some of the
0: examples, I can if I wish arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. So that's an example of if you think about having to be Basically, I'm a minority all the time and the discomfort that causes, that's an example of minority status leading to a kind of potential social discomfort. So for instance, I can be pretty sure my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. That's actually a focus on a specific negative interaction with someone. Really, I divide that up into two categories. There's cases of representation, how are black people represented in the media, and so on. So that pretty clearly is obviously about social recognition in the sense that it's concerned with how does society as a whole look at black people? What is that gaze, let's say? What is the narrative there? What is the story? And how does that affect the self-confidence and self-esteem of black people or the sense of identity and so on? Because I presume that's the way this sort of thing would work, right? It's invisible to white people because it's just sort of the water that they... It's transparent and they're used to it, but the constant sort of kind of validating environment around them, which is their representation in the media and pleasant interactions with people not having to worry about someone being suspicious that you're a criminal when you're in a store and all that stuff. So that's about social recognition and the sense of public consciousness of whiteness versus public consciousness of blackness. And then the question is how those things affect individuals, which seems to me the mechanism would have to be through self-confidence, self-esteem, other factors similar to that. Am I wrong about that?
3: I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot here to kind of get into. And I do want to be intentional about saying that it's not necessarily just about black and white, but of course, it's just about the notion of just people of color in general. So of course, we're including people who are Asian, people who are Hispanic, because that's an ethnicity and not necessarily a race, but the core of it. It has to do with feeling as though one belongs in a society and and feeling as though one has a place. And that's part of it. And so much of what resonates with students oftentimes is that here you have an article that kind of discusses the ways in which there are a group of people who are considered to be the default in a particular culture. And what does that mean for people of color who are just by their very existence kind of marginalized? And that's usually what gets us going. Because what we're discussing here, this Peggy McIntosh piece, that's a week one kind of reading, because it's a kind of a foundational reading. And also, too, it's very understandable. It's short. It's a nice introduction. But beyond that, it kind of gets people thinking about things that they otherwise might not have thought about. Because many people exist in a world wherein, They don't have to really think about what it feels like to be marginalized. And so one of the things that oftentimes happens, particularly with my students here in Oklahoma, is that they come from a small town and they really have no experience of being a minority in a room. Right. They're always the majority. They're never aware of that. Whereas if you're a person of color, you know what it feels like to be the only whatever you are in the room. Same thing goes with women. Oftentimes, same thing goes with LGBTQ folks. And so what happens is that oftentimes when people are accustomed to being in the majority and they are now in the minority, many people do everything they can to get out of that kind of situation, right? Whereas if you are a person of color, so for example, you know, I'm a black man in philosophy. I just came back from Seattle and we were talking about race at this aesthetics conference in Seattle, but the room was full of white folks. And so if I want to do the work that I want to do, I have no choice but to be in that kind of environment. Whereas if I had access to this privilege, I would be able to kind of circumnavigate my life in such a way if I wanted to, to make sure that I'm never in the minority. And so that's just a function of privilege. Now, what's the good of discussing that? That's a separate question, but that's kind of what's at stake, just laying it out there and and being clear about just what is this privilege? How does it work? And then, you know, the next step after that is, you know, what's at stake?
1: So, yeah, it's interesting, Wes, that you point out that so many of these things are psychological. There's a couple, like I can be sure that if I need legal or medical help, my race will not work against me. Like that's not, I won't feel bad. That's like I might actually die or get in jail because of racial issues. And those are the things that are more in the Tim Weiss documentary or the Charles Mills white ignorance paper. Those are the things that are more emphasized. It's not Fundamentally, people feeling uncomfortable, it's actual it's justice, you know, white supremacy, yes, it's distributive justice,
0: yep, so the way I actually thought about this in terms of distributive justice, the question is, what is the good at stake? I honestly don't think it's largely material, at least if you look at the Macintosh paper, there are some cases in which this is about, like I said, material disadvantages, harassment, and things like that, but most of the focus is on social recognition. So I take it to be a sort of psychological version of distributive justice, where the good in question that should be equally distributed is this social recognition. And if it's not that, it's hard to see how acknowledgement of white privilege can make any difference, because I think the acknowledgement of white privilege is meant to have, to some extent, an equalizing effect. And the other part of this is Macintosh makes clear that it's not enough for white people to have good intentions and to think I'm not a racist. And even one of the academic writers, it's in the mild critique. But basically, you could be a complete stereotypical social justice warrior about race and never have heard of white privilege. You could be working on policies to decrease the way disparate effects of, of health via the healthcare system, things like that. Those are the ways in which you try to equalize things and usually more having to do with material disadvantages by bringing black people up to the level of whites. But I think as far as Macintosh is concerned, what she says about men, for instance, that's her big example, is that they may say they will work to improve women's status in society, in the society, the university, or the curriculum, but they can't or won't support the idea of lessening men's. So, the novelty with white privilege, as far as I can tell from Macintosh's paper, is it's the, the idea that it's not just about increasing something for black people, it's about equalizing things by lessening it, or I'm sorry, I keep saying black, even though I know it's people of color. And privilege theory can be applied more generally as she's doing it with men. But the idea is to, in the same way that she talks about lessening men's, so it's the idea that you can actually achieve equality by lessening. Privilege. Now, in most cases, that's impossible, right? And she understands that.
4: Is it lessening privilege or lessening power? Or are those the same thing? Because in like the fourth paragraph, right, she is referring to how hard it is to work to reveal male privilege and ask men to give up some of their power. So it seems that part of this does have to do with power. And it may be social, but it seems like in the end, it's got to tie back to Something about justice. But it's not
0: material because no one's asking. Peggy McIntosh is not implying that she's going to quit her job as a professor. She's not implying that anyone should quit their job. She's not implying that white people should lessen their material status, as far as I can tell, in any way to accomplish equalization. So, whatever lessening that's going on would have to be a psychological lessening of status.
3: Peggy McIntosh's project, what she's doing here, she just simply wants to say this exists, right? I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. all that she's up to here, right? She, She just wants to say this is a thing that exists that many people may not have been aware of. For her to be writing this back in 88, I mean, the reason why we still teach it is because it was one of the first pieces that takes this thing called white privilege kind of seriously and looks for examples, even though many of these examples are dated. It looks for examples for where these things kind of play themselves out. Now, when you move from just this is what white privilege is on a kind of a micro level, and you then begin to go to where Tim Wise did in the documentary where he begins to start talking about the way in which privilege functions on an institutional level, right, then you begin to see some of the material kind of ramifications of this thing, where you begin to see how these kinds of privileges can lead to individuals not being hired or these kinds of things can lead to individuals being racially profiled as it relates to police forces and whatnot. And so that's where it becomes a little bit more of a macro kind of examination of how this has implications systemically. But what she's up to is just quite simply just saying, this is a thing that exists. And then many people have taken her work and kind of run with it and begin to kind of apply the insights that she had on the very small, small scale into larger implications about how these things impact people on a day-to-day basis. And and even further, I think it's important to kind of put this within the context of history because we can't talk about this. We can't talk about race, period, ahistorically. So going back to our very first discussion many years ago with Cornel West, where he talked about white normativity, and he did a genealogy of white supremacy, I think is what he called it, a genealogy of white norm, it was something like that, genealogy of, of, of racism, I think is what he called it. And when you place within the context of history, you begin to see how this white privilege through a historical lens has provided opportunities for a group of individuals that still have ramifications today. And so it is white privilege that allowed for there to be Jim Crow laws and certain individuals are not allowed to own homes in certain areas because of redlining and things of that nature.
0: There's a lot of implications about what should be done and what shouldn't. So, for instance... She says, I did not see myself as a racist because I was taught to recognize racism only in individual acts of meanness by members of my group, never in invisible systems conferring unsought racial dominance on my group from birth. And then she says, disapproving of the systems won't be enough to change them. I was taught to think that racism could end if white individuals change their attitudes. So this isn't really just about white people changing their attitudes or about individual acts of kindness or individual acts of fighting for, let's say, policies that benefit black people, it has to be something more. Because otherwise, it's not. there's really no innovation, and it's hard to see how there's a mechanism where acknowledging white privilege is any different than just saying, well, black people are underprivileged, and we need to change that. We need to do that with policies and with this and that. Well, so even in
1: this paper, she distinguishes between unearned advantage privileges and conferred dominance privileges. So just the fact that the waiter serves the white people earlier in Denny's or wherever <laughs> that happens. <laughs> you also go to, uh, to Denny's? <laughs> famously Denny's. That's what I'm, that's why I use that. It would be an unearned advantage. It doesn't mean that the white customers then get dominance over the black customers because of that.
0: Yeah, this is like a social distributive justice. The thing that's to be distributed, the good that we're worrying about, is a social good that has to do with being made confident, uncomfortable, and alienated, and so on. It's the things that validate us versus the things that don't validate us. That seems to me to be the fundamental issue. And those things are ultimately related in subtle ways to material advantages as well. But I think the direct focus
2: here is psychological. I mean, I guess I disagree with Wes's assessment that they're predominantly psychological. One of the things... I mean, where I thought you were leading us, Mark, was to the Blum essay where he, at first I thought he was making some typically unhelpful analytic distinctions. For the purposes of this article, I will register Gordon's legitimate linguistic complaint, but will continue to use the word privilege because of its pervasiveness and familiarity within the literature. Within MacIntosh's category of privileges worth having, there still seem to be Some important distinctions to be made. The first is between spared injustice privileges and unjust enrichment privileges. So I read this first, and I had read the shorter two-page version of The Backpack. But she is very clear about this. So I felt like Blum, if Mark had just kept reading... We might at least start distinguishing between positive advantages which we can work to spread and negative types of advantages which, unless rejected, will always reinforce our present hierarchies. For example, the feeling that one belongs within the human circle should not be seen as a privilege of the few. Ideally, it is an unearned advantage and not conferred dominance. The expectation that neighbors will be decent to you or that your race will not count against you in court should be the norm in a just society." Others like the privilege to ignore less powerful people, distort the humanity of the holders as well as ignore groups. It doesn't seem to be psychological to say that if the basis of a just society is that, for example, somebody can reasonably expect to be judged by a jury of their peers and we should have the expectation that the peers would not judge you based on the identical actions by identical people and the only difference being their race, that the race would factor against them.
0: So I agree there's some of that, but if you go down this list of 26 things in the original and then the longer list in the other handout, you know, I can turn on the television or open the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. Almost every one of those things is like that. There are a few mentions of things involving
2: material advantages. I do see what you're saying there. The way she articulates these is all about the psychological disposition of other people. And I think that's real and important, by the way. I think it's something that shouldn't be ignored. I agree, but I think she's highlighting symptoms here. The articulation of how the thing, her experience of the as is. So as Law said, this is kind of like a state of, it's a recognition, it's a state of the as is. It's not intended to be a call to action or a scholastic piece. But... The idea that she articulates these things in terms of her own experience makes sense from the context of the paper, but that doesn't mean that the underlying issues are purely psychological.
1: Well, and some of the other, so like the Lewis Gordon article, which is reflecting on the way white privilege is used in the literature, and this is from 2004, so there's been a lot of literature since this Macintosh article. He says, this is the second page of the article, I think, 175. The case he's interested in is where the individual does not want the privilege, is disgusted by the privilege, and might find him or herself in a struggle against it. Such an individual sees himself or herself as living a mundane life in which notions of privilege fall sway to notions of human fragility. What he or she looks for in life are things that it would seem unimaginable for other people to reject safety, food, clothing, and shelter, education through which each generation can achieve its potential, positive aesthetic imagery to transform spaces into places, dwelling into homes, a positive sense of self, and meeting another human being with whom to build and share these features that mark the transformation of a human world into a humane one. So that's his take on what's typically accused, hey, you're enjoying your white privilege. Well, what that means is that you, as a member of the privileged class, are not in a state of terror or being materially deprived, which then would lead to a state of terror, that you feel secure in these things. And those are exactly the kind of things that Macintosh was just saying at the end, that these should be rights, these should be the norm, you should not be calling it privilege, which this is Gordon's objection, makes it sound to him like, well, it's the privileged class, like the people that go to Harvard, the people that get in the exclusive country club. Well, like, Some of the privileges we're talking about might be like that, but the most important ones, the ones that are really most worth fighting for, are these very fundamental ones, a couple of which, a positive sense of self, aesthetic imagery to transform spaces into places. Well, those are kind of psychological, but they're put in a way that it sounds like Wes would approve of. You're acknowledging, yes, they're psychological, but they're really important. It's not just, oh, I feel bad. It's things that funnily make up the meaning of life. And to say that you're just being privileged by taking those things for granted or something, it doesn't seem the best possible word, let's say that. Talking about human rights might be more accurate. That's at least Gordon's thought.
4: This gets back to the question of what's the baseline? And is the baseline something that everybody If it's a privilege, then that would mean that the baseline would be, let's call it lower, and that that's where everybody ought to be content with. But I think Gordon's point is that the things that we're referring to as privileges, it's like talking about a just society and that it wouldn't make it more just by making it all equivalently unjust. That's this kind of theme. And so that you, by having to turn rights talk into privilege talk, is in some ways, I take him to be saying, is taking the power out of the claim that in fact it's a deep injustice you've maybe served your purpose by saying it's a privilege by calling attention to the water that surrounds you and so that you have a unacknowledged unseen you lack self-knowledge about the status you have within your society but it quickly loses its power because it's not acknowledging and recognizing it as being a deprivation of right for the people who don't have that privilege.
1: And if we're thinking of it in terms of rights, then it seems maybe unlike a lot of what the Backpack article actually says, to interpret it all as psychological in any form seems like, well, is that really the rights that we're talking about? It's fundamentally a psychological right, the right to equal recognition? I'm not sure. I think it just depends what author we're referring to. Yeah.
4: One thing that I would want to say about that, and maybe I'm even backtracking what I said, is that when we say, are we just talking about, well, everybody has the right to be recognized? It sounds a little bit like, well, gosh, really? You know, does everybody, is that really what the right is? But the fact is, is that rendering a person invisible is a incredibly disempowering thing, right? It turns them into not being a person by not acknowledging them. And it's commonly, not just in the case with race, but with all other kinds of things, the fundamental way of excluding. And so the lack of acknowledgement does have that turn of being genuinely an exercise of power that is a disenfranchisement, unjust, all kinds of other things, where it isn't acting necessarily always as a purposeful, aggressive act of beating down, but has a lot of the similar kinds of effects by simply refusing to acknowledge that you exist.
0: Yeah, or worse. I mean, demonizing you. or But yeah, social recognition is in some sense constitutive, right? Psychically, it's something we all need. It's really important. Well, and And politically that you're included as a citizen, yeah. Yeah. And the focus on it, I think, is actually important. It's something that should be highlighted. I think that's one of the good innovations of talk about white privilege. You know, and this is why I was trying to emphasize the psychological aspect of this, not to diminish it, but because people are more likely to be aware. Of, people are more likely to think about racial justice in terms of these more overt things about whether someone has actually been discriminated against or so on and so forth. But yes, the sense in which this factor of cultural representation is very real and very important, and does lead to material disadvantages. So the material disenfranchisement doesn't have to be direct, in other words.
1: Maybe we should bring in the Tim White documentary, which does seem to be about material disenfranchisement primarily. And he does not spell out, I don't think, the exact connections in the way that we're talking about between the psychological and the material. He just says his opponents here are the folks that say Oh hey, you know, Obama's president now or you know, the civil rights laws passed, so therefore there's no more racism. And then he just instead gives you a bunch of figures. Well, hey, look, the median wealth of white families is 20 times greater than that of black families. 70% of students of color attend majority black schools, which are 10 more times to have high levels of poverty. College-educated blacks are nearly twice as likely to be unemployed. So, you might think that people are being more civil to each other, Except for, you know, those bastard obvious racists that you see at rallies holding up Obama is a monkey signs or crap like that. But just the fact that you, we have these great disparities means that something is not connecting, that racism is not as gone as we think.
3: One of the things that kind of struck me about that is typically whenever people talk about racism or they talk about white privilege, they oftentimes talk about it only within the context of interpersonal interactions, right? And so as long as I'm a good person, then that's all that ultimately matters. And what I think that documentary does a pretty good job of doing, although I do have some criticisms, but I think it does a pretty good job of pointing out the institutional side of it. And it points out the ways in which these things have historical precedents. These things go back to really even before the founding of the country, but certainly to the founding of the country, right? And these are things that are kind of embedded and woven into the very fabric of this country. And so it begins to shift it away from, hey, just be a nice person into, okay, now what do we do to try to make a more just society? And I think that one of the things that, I continue to wrestle with is that for many people today in order for something to be considered racially problematic it has to rise all the way to the very high bar of overt racism like so someone has to use a racial epithet, or someone has to do something that is just completely overtly racist in order for it to qualify as being racially problematic and what he shows us or he attempts to show us is that Things like covert racism, where you're operating according to a racist idea, but just not saying it, but you're still operating according to it. And so that will impact your hiring practices and they'll impact the school that you attend and they'll impact who you invite over your homes and things of that nature. How that has an impact as well, a very real material impact beyond just people of color not seeing themselves represented in culture or not being able to get decent band-aids or whatever, but rather it actually has an impact in hiring decisions and firing decisions and being pulled over by the police and things along those lines. I think it does a pretty good job of kind of getting us thinking along those lines. Although, as I said, I do have a few criticisms.
1: Wasn't one of the more surprising statistics pulled out was that when applying for jobs, people that have marked, yes, I've committed a crime are more likely to be called back for an interview than black applicants.
3: Yeah. And there's been a number of studies that have come out that shows that if you are a black person and you've gotten higher education, that you are just as likely to be called back for an interview or hired as a white person with the high school diploma. I mean, that's a real material kind of impact upon these kinds of things. Particularly if you have an ethnic sounding name, it gets even worse there. Like a Lawrence Ware, you know, they think, oh, that's the law. It's all good. But, you know, if, if my name was like, you know, <laughs> Lawrence Fufu or something, you know, I wouldn't get that call back.
1: Well, so how did this documentary connect up to the white privilege discussion for UFO? I mean, that's definitely the way he puts it, that I didn't realize that I had this white privilege. And so he goes around specifically talking. He's a guy who tours universities talking about white privilege and kind of being one of those white privilege 101 educators of young people across the country.
0: Yeah, maybe this gets us back to the question of what does it mean to acknowledge one's white privilege? Why would that have any efficacy? And how does it differ from simply saying, yeah, hey, people of color suffer from all these disadvantages and we should help fix that? That documentary was, it it, it seemed more generic to me than the question specifically. I mean, even though he talks about white privilege, the question is, what is the point of Having white people become aware of their privilege. What is the mechanism there? How does that actually improve things? What does checking one's privilege mean? Obviously, you can't do all these systemic things. In a way, it's beyond one's control. So what does the
4: checking actually entail? I I don't want to derail from the question you've asked by asking a more general one, but is it a version of what does it mean to ask about the context of anything but a particularly poignant and potent example? Or is it different in kind Then A, the question of self-knowledge and B, the question of context, the kind of embeddedness that Law was talking about, that one version of that embeddedness is understanding the cultural context that you're in and the forces that those have and your relative role and participation are the gives and takes of that in your life and being cognizant of it, that kind of contextual embeddedness. Is it the same as that kind of thing, an poignant example, or is it different than that?
1: Well, I thought that's what Charles Mills – thats kind of was his thesis is that his article, again, is called White Ignorance and that he gives this whole thing about we need a social epistemology, which basically, like you're saying, it's acknowledging the contextual place from which we come and saying that given where you are in society, you are going to systematically – In the nature of not just human psychology, but more in sociology, in the way that histories get passed on, the way that stories get told, what gets a monument built out of it, who gets in the history books, that all these things give rise to an inability to recognize certain facts. So a lot of the the kind of things Tim Weiss is bringing up in his documentary are examples of that. The documentary shows people complaining about like, oh, all these scholarships that are given to just minorities, why aren't there scholarships given to just white people if they're scholarships? And he points out that no, actually, the percentage, it's like 0.25%, one quarter of 1% are scholarships set aside for people of color. All the rest of them are open to white people, and mostly white people get them. So that's the kind of fact that he thinks that somebody who is predisposed to racism is going to find it hard to believe, is going to want to dispute, is not going to take the time to learn facts like that. Those are just going to be invisible things. And so that is the reason for acknowledging your white privilege is to open you up really to be more objective and open to empirical fact. I don't think so. I mean, I think in the context of that
0: documentary, yes. but Because there has to be something innovative about this, right? There has to be something interesting about talking about white privilege as just opposed to black disadvantage. Why do you look at it through one lens and not the other? And so Bloom has a very interesting example, and this is on, sorry, i just trying to, page 318. For example, the second question forces one to look at the concrete structures that produce disparities and to ask what can be done about them. As suggested earlier, these structures are not the same in every domain of social existence. Suppose a white student is interested in the area of medicine and wishes to engage with the issue of healthcare disparities, then an activity that might both contribute in a meaningful way to improving the situation of Latinos and Blacks in the USA and be personally meaningful to the student would be to join a group that is researching and documenting healthcare disparities in one very specific area, say diabetes care, or it might involve trying to find a project or group that is attempting to educate healthcare providers about the ways that they generally unknowingly and unintentionally shortchange their black and Latino patients. Notice, however, that the student in question could engage in such projects without ever coming to grips with or even focusing on her own white privilege. She could engage in research and activism concerning a particular disparity and be driven by a commitment to racial justice. So I, I'm trying to get at the subtlety of this. This isn't just about – so the girl in this example – Is completely cognizant of the disparities, the racial disparities, and the injustice of that, and is trying to change it. That's a completely different thing than her coming to grips with her own white privilege. What is the point of convincing her that she in particular is privileged and needs to come to terms with that?
3: That's something that I think about quite frequently. Because... One thing that that I'm not interested in doing is wanting a person to feel guilty just for the sake of feeling guilty. And, And I will admit that many individuals do use white guilt almost as a weapon. They weaponize it. Right. You know, and so anything that a person might say, they kind of try to discount it and just say, well, you know, you're just speaking from a place of privilege. However, I do think that there is value in seeing that privilege. And perhaps seeing how that privilege might lead one to make morally problematic choices. So, for example, full disclosure, George Yancey is something of a mentor for me who's a a philosopher of race. He's down in Emory now. Anytime he gives a talk, one of the things he always talks about is how he says, I am a sexist, but I'm a recovering sexist or I'm a recovering patriarchal person or something like that. Right. And so what that does for him is it allows him to say, this is something that I am aware that I have, right. I'm aware that this is a problematic view that I have. And this is a privilege that I have access to. And so, I am engaged in being self-reflective about it and working to try to right whatever wrongs may either give rise to it or may come out of it. And so, I think that part of why examining privilege, on the one hand, as a philosopher, I'm just interested in the fully examined life, right? And so, being intellectually curious and being aware of just the way in which these things work and and the forces that surround us that give rise to things like privilege and the way in which they kind of work in the world. But on the other side of that, I do think that there is value in a person being aware of that privilege and perhaps using that privilege in a way that brings about more justice and being reflective and for the sake of educating other individuals about that privilege. So I, I do think that there is some value there, but I do understand his point that a person can be engaged in the work of trying to make a more just society without ever having to confront that. Although I do wonder if being aware of that privilege allows a person to have more insight into how to fight against these things and and learning how to build a more just society. I just wonder if that helps some. In fact, I'm pretty confident it probably does.
1: So I think the most direct thing, and this is maybe a low bar for us white people to meet, is don't be a social Darwinist asshole. (laughs) Don't say, oh, if there's that great of disparity, well, they must not have a good work ethic or something. Don't do that at least.
4: You are gonna trip over that bar, Mark? Well, he better not trip over that bar. <laughs> no,
3: but but you know what's funny is that today in class I had my students do some group work for the past week where they kind of I, I gave them things that I wanted them to kind of research, and so they were talking about things like housing equity, and they were talking about things like education, and they were talking about racial profiling. And one of the fundamental questions that I asked them is, you know, does racial profiling even exist? And so today, one of my groups presented about poverty, and so the question that I asked them point blank, I said, okay. If I'm looking at these numbers and I'm looking only at them through an a-historical lens, I don't take into account history, I don't take into account anything, what these numbers tell me is that these group of people who are impoverished are just lazy. Is that what's happening? Right. And so I'm challenging them to think about this in a larger scale. And I know that philosophically. We understand that philosophy is not history, but I think with this kind of subject matter, it's important to have the concept of history in the back of our minds as we're talking about this. And so the reason why I asked that question is to get them to kind of think about the ways in which we got to the numbers where we are, as opposed to just simply looking at the numbers through a snapshot and just completely trying to come to some kind of ad hoc. Conclusion based solely upon the in numbers. You know, we have to take into consideration educational access, and that has a function of privilege. We have to take into consideration legacies of redlining, and that has a function of privilege. We have to take into consideration economic opportunity and that has a function of privilege you know these are all real material kind of functions and so i think that low bar that you're talking about man i mean i think that's a joke kind of but it's kind of true i mean there are how many people do we know who look at those raw numbers and just like yo they're lazy or they have a predisposition towards criminality many people really think that stuff man especially in oklahoma i don't know what they're doing up in wisconsin now. although <laughs> i did see i, I did see watching it's, a
0: little, a murder, it's a little it's a little bit different in wisconsin but well you know who you voted for
1: hey so. hey <laughs> <laughs> alright well that's great that we got some of the readings out we got even some of the initial criticisms out in our second half next week we're going to talk more about you know is this guilt and more about social epistemology and the Really the theoretical apparatus that might drive one to believe in white ignorance of the kind of thing bills talks about and much more. So I hope you come back or, Hey, get the citizen version right now. And just so you know, we actually give away some scholarship versions of this. So this is not just for the privilege. If you're too poor to afford a citizenship, although really you don't have $5, you know, you're on a, some sort of electronic device. I bet you have $5. In any case, if you don't want to do that, you can always reach out to us. Email us at PEL at com, And uh, once a month or so, we'll we'll give a free citizenship to somebody, to a deserving. And if you say that you're a criminal, then we're more likely. No, there's no bias involved. It's the Internet. We don't know who you are. You could use a fake name. Maybe we know who you are because it is the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you next time.